Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. Holy God, it is with thanksgiving in our hearts that we worship in this holy season. We give thanks for one another. We give thanks for fellowship. We give thanks for the opportunity to lift our voices and to share our gifts on this morning. God, we give thanks for your word. The Old Testament prophet's vision of hope and renewal, the stories of John the Baptist calling us to bear fruit worthy of repentance. We pray that these words of Scripture would not just be words on the page, but that these would be words alive with your power speaking to us this morning. This in Christ's name we pray. Amen. When Jill and I were preparing to uh, move, to come to you all, this would have been in the spring of, of 2019, we found out we were coming to you, you found out you were having a pastoral transition. Uh, as we got into April and May, as those days were, were moving closer and closer to a move date, we were dealing with a little bit of a natural disaster over on the west side of the state, and you may uh, remember seeing news reports of this. Uh, in the spring of 19, in the winter, and then into the spring, uh, the Arkansas River uh, was experiencing historic flooding all along the river uh, well before it got to the, to the state line of Arkansas. Well up its banks, there were many communities in danger of flooding, and that, that water was rising uh, further up the river, but it began to make its way toward Arkansas. Uh, and Fort Smith sits right on the Arkansas River, uh, right on the state line with Oklahoma. There's a big bridge that you cross over the river that takes you into Oklahoma. Uh, then the river kind of bends around the, the north side of the, the city, uh, and then it makes a big curve and goes toward the southeast, eventually toward Russellville and, and Little Rock and beyond. There in the, in the southeast corner of Fort Smith, where the river kind of makes a bend, uh, there are a number of homes. There's schools, there's a nice community that's kind of a growing side of Fort Smith, and there are many people that live uh, there in the crook of the river. And they live in uh, what was described at the time as the 100-year flood zone. 100-year flood zone. And so there are five-year flood zones, 20-year flood zones, 50-year flood zones. A 100-year flood zone means it is highly, highly unlikely that your particular elevation would ever flood. But of course, at this time, we were having such historic conditions that these homes and these properties began to be in danger. And so I, I was going down there. We had a lot of church members that lived in that neighborhood. We helped a number of them pack up their homes and move. We tried to do sandbags, and it was just a really chaotic and scary thing. But I remember one particular day, and you can see in this picture, uh, as I was there in someone's lawn, and, and as the water from the river was creeping further up into the neighborhood, uh, there on the edge of the water, if you looked really closely, as I tried to do in this photo, uh, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of worms coming to the surface. Can you see them in that picture? There were worms so thick. I mean, if you had reached down with your hand and scooped up, you would have just had a hand overflowing with worms, right? Uh, red worms, night crawlers, earthworms, they were as thick as the grass itself. And of course, they were coming uh, out of the lower levels, and they were trying to make their way up to the higher levels, trying to make their way up to the surface, trying to avoid those flooding conditions. It was a really ominous and weird thing to see all of those worms there on the surface. People who do forest fire fighting out in the west particular, they report something similar. Whenever there's a forest that's ablaze, a large forest fire, that often the animals need to escape, right? And so you will see images of deer and elk, uh, smaller animals, squirrels, raccoons, even down to the snakes. 
right? On the edge of forest fires, there'll be images and videos of snakes trying to get away, right? Because the heat is so concerning. I'll offer you that image this morning because I think that's sort of what John the Baptist has in mind as he begins to preach this sermon out into the wilderness as these folks began to come and visit him. Remember last week when John was introduced, we were told that he was preaching a, a message of repentance and forgiveness and that he was preaching the, the, the themes of Isaiah, that, that the God was coming and that the mountains would be made low and the crooked ways would be made straight and the valleys would be, be made filled and that this new reality of God's presence was on the way. And so today we pick up what John's preaching and, and he says to those who are coming out to hear him, he says, who told you you could flee from the wrath to come, you brood of vipers? Merry Christmas, right? Uh, just what you wanted here in the middle of December. John sort of seems to imagine, along with the prophets before him in the Old Testament, that, that God's presence is coming in the world in such a, a magnificent and profound way, sort of like a flooding water or, or a raging wildfire, that those who sense God's presence, that they sense that something is a little bit off, that something's a little bit intimidating, something maybe a little bit scary is happening, and so they began to run away, right? They begin to run away. And John says to them in this sermon, in essence, is like, who told you you could run away? Who told you you could run away? You can't run away from this thing that is happening. Like, this is God. This is God the creator. This is God the, the holy, imminent, eternal God coming to us in Jesus Christ. Like, you thought you could run away, right? And so we turn to John the Baptist in Advent because we are sort of trying to remind ourselves of the seriousness, of the, of the power of what is happening in this manger. A small baby in a manger to unlikely parents. It's a cute and sort of cuddly story, but but John's trying to get us to see the, the sort of cosmic implications. This is God. This is the God who created, the God who called the people of Israel. This is God who was at work in the burning bush and the, and the fire by day. This God is coming down to us, among us, with us. And you thought you could out, outrun it? No. You can outrun God's presence, is what John says. So instead of outrunning it, you ought to bear fruit worthy of repentance, right? Now, this is where John gets sort of churchy with us, right? Because he gives us this great hook, right? The beginning of the sermon, who told you to flee from the wrath to come, you brood of vipers, right? That sort of gets people interested. And then he says, well, instead of running, you ought to bear fruit worthy of repentance. Now, that, of course, is an odd phrase, and I want to think with you a little bit about what it means, Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Uh, I like this image, and I hope this kind of drills into your mind forever and ever when you read this passage that you remember a, a bear holding a pineapple, right? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Well, bear fruit, we sort of know what that means. Trees produce fruit, apple trees, pineapple trees, banana trees, they produce fruit. And so we, in some sense, produce fruit, right? That makes sense. Our lives produce fruit, relationships, things happen because of the way we live. But then there's this other part, worthy of repentance, and that phrase is pretty odd, right? Like, bear fruit, like, do things that represent my desire to repent, right? And when John says that, and when I read that in Luke's Gospel, I sort of scratch my head, like, what does he mean by bear fruit worthy of repentance? We know we can't run away from God. We know God's presence is so powerful, so all-encompassing that it affects our lives, but bear fruit worthy of repentance. What do I mean by that? 
If you remember from your history classes or of your literature classes, particularly when you studied that medieval time period, uh, we were taught in school, maybe we read uh, part of the Canterbury Tales, right? We were taught in school that in that medieval time period, there was this very rigid class system. Do you remember this? Uh, and one story that captures this so well for me is the movie A Knight's Tale. Do you remember this movie? It came out about 20 years ago, maybe longer. It's sort of a parody. It's sort of a satire of a medieval story. It's actually a play on, on one of the Canterbury Tales titled A Knight's Tale. The movie's really silly, but it's kind of funny. It's kind of a romantic comedy. It kind of interplays with these ancient themes, but it has some more contemporary themes and music and things as well. But anyway, in A Knight's Tale, Heath Ledger, of course, is a common man. He's, he's, a, he's a low person in, in society, but he wants to win the heart of this, this woman who's of a high esteem. And so he begins to train and begins to be uh, positioned and taught to be a knight. And so he wants to become a knight. He wants to change his class. Uh, so that he can impress this woman who is above his class, right? And that's kind of a, a theme in this, in this particular story, a theme from the medieval times, that, that you were born into a particular class and you were stuck there, right? You were either of a low class or a middle class or an upper class. In fact, in school, we may have even seen some charts like this, right? That there were commoners, that there were peasants on the bottom, that in the middle that there were knights, people who wore that sort of armor and did the fighting, and at the top were lords who owned land and who managed economic affairs, and of course at the very top would have been royalty or, or the king. And so you were born into one of these three classes, and we were taught in school that you could not change classes, right? I mean, you could be a wealthy person that was a, a commoner, or you could be a wealthy person that was a, a landowner, but whatever your class was, you were born into it, and you married into it, and you, and you stayed into it, and you couldn't change. There's sort of this rigid class system. Do you remember studying this in school? Well, I want you to look at what Luke does here in his response to John the Baptist's question about bearing fruit worthy of repentance. Because what he does is he sort of he sort of answers that question about what does it mean to bear fruit worthy, worthy of repentance. He, he answers that question by using this sort of class system. I want you to look at the way in which he answers those questions. So as John is preaching this message, the crowds who are gathering there begin to ask him, what should we do? Right? So the crowds are gathering. These presumably are common folks. These are probably Jews for the most part. At the beginning of his sermon, John calls them the ancestors of Abraham, right? So we sort of have the crowds, and the crowds ask him, well, what should we do? And he says, well, whoever has two cokes should give one away, and whoever has extra food should do likewise. And the next he asks about the, the, the soldiers, right? The soldiers say, well, what should we do? Why is this important? Well, soldiers are, of course, Roman authorities. And if you look all the way forward to the Easter story, we know the terrible things that, that the Roman soldiers do. They're sort of known for their violence and the way in which they apprehend and the way in which they hurt other people. So they're known for their awful acts, and, and he says, well, you shouldn't do that, right? You shouldn't extort people. You shouldn't do harm to people. You should be satisfied with what you make. And then the next group that asks, what about the tax collectors? Well, what should we do? And he says, well, you ought to be satisfied with your money. You shouldn't take advantage of those who you work with. Now, I want you to recognize the way in which Luke, in John's word, has sort of put together this pyramid, this hierarchy, this social structure in the ancient world. You have the common people, the Jews. You have soldiers, Roman authorities. You have tax collectors, Roman authorities. You have these, this hierarchy of power and authority. And yet, yet all of them are coming to John the Baptist, asking what should we do? What do we need to do to bear fruit worthy of repentance? Now, that may seem like a simple thing, but, but think about it a little bit in terms of those medieval lessons that we used to have in history. Luke is, is kind of saying something radical is happening here. It's not just poor Jews who are coming to John the Baptist to hear his preaching, 
but it's also Romans. It's also Gentiles. And it, it happens to be Gentiles who kind of do nasty and terrible things like tax collectors and soldiers. Those with a lot of power and those with a lot of authority, those who, who wouldn't need, you know, John the Baptist, even they're coming out to hear his preaching. And notice how John the Baptist responds to each one of them, kind of relative to their place in society. Like, if you're a common person, if you're just one of the crowd, he says, well, you ought to give one of your coats away, right? But if you're a soldier, well, you, you should do your job in a way that's fair and respectful. You shouldn't hurt other people. If you're a tax collector, you shouldn't extort money. You shouldn't do harm to those who are already living in poverty. And so John sort of changes the expectations according to people's class and their role in society. And the point being is it doesn't matter if you're sort of at the top of the pyramid and you're sort of wealthy and powerful, or if you're sort of at the bottom of the pyramid, if you're sort of a poor person among the crowd of Jews. In Luke's preaching, in Luke's description of John's preaching, everyone is included, right? No one is either too high or too low. This thing that is happening in Jesus Christ, this good news that is coming into the world, it includes everyone. Jews and Gentiles, those with power and privilege, those with wealth and those without. And it also means that this would be a pretty strange thing to hear tax collectors and soldiers going out to a Jewish preacher and saying, like, what do we need to do? So Luke's offering us a, a, a pretty exciting vision. Luke's saying, like, look at everyone who will be included in this new thing that is happening in Jesus Christ. From the crowds of Jews to the wealthy and violent and terrible Roman authorities, everyone is coming and being included in this new thing that is happening in Jesus. I'll remind you that, that Luke, of course, is, is the same author who writes later the story of Acts. And Acts, of course, begins with Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit and fire among all these different types of people speaking different languages, Jews and non-Jews. So in Luke's vision here, that, that story of Pentecost kind of begins with John the Baptist preaching. That everyone will be included. That this expectation that comes with following Jesus will, will include even those who, who maybe have not been included in the past. Tax collectors, soldiers, and the crowds. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. This last part of the, of the preaching by John the Baptist is probably... Uh, not well understood by us because we don't necessarily live in these times. And we may read it a little bit in the way that we read other parts of the Bible. Uh, John the Baptist tells them at the end as they're gathering, they begin to get sort of excited. Like they're hearing John the Baptist preaching, right? And they begin to wonder, like, is he the Messiah? And John the Baptist wonderfully says, like, no, no, it's not me. Instead, there's one who's coming after me. Uh, he will come to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, right? The Holy Spirit and fire. And then John the Baptist offers this sort of image, this kind of parable. He says, it, it's like this, it's like this, that Jesus is coming with his winnowing fork in his hand, uh, and he's separating the wheat from the chaff. Uh, and as he does so, uh, the wheat will be sort of lifted up, and the chaff will be burned with an unquenchable fire. Again, more Merry Christmas from John the Baptist, right? I think we sometimes read that, and certainly I've often read it, and we just kind of think about it like this is a sheep and the goats sort of thing. 
right? Like we read in the other stories of Jesus, he's going to separate the sheep and the goats and sort of this eternal celebration of one and this sort of eternal punishment in the other. And we might read that the same here, that, that Jesus is going to separate the wheat from the chaff and the, the wheat are the good people who follow Jesus and, and the chaff are the people who are selfish and, and hurtful and they don't follow Jesus and so they're going to be punished. But those of us who, of course, haven't actually separated wheat from chaff would sort of fail to recognize the way in which this image is working for John the Baptist. Every kernel of wheat, every kernel of wheat or a grain, has around it an outer husk, right? And that outer husk is called the chaff. Now, most animals, particularly cattle, they can eat both the husk, the chaff, and the grain. They can consume all of it, and their stomach can handle all of it. But we, having a little bit more sensitive stomachs, we don't eat the chaff. We don't eat the stalk. We don't eat the outer husk. We just eat the grain itself. So in the ancient world, you had to do something like this, right? You had to use a winnowing fork. You had to use a basket. You had to use a paddle. You had to do something to break away that outer husk from the inner grain. And as you did so, you would separate the inner grain, the wheat, from the chaff, the husk, and the stalk, right? Well, that's important because what what John is trying to get us to see is that when Jesus comes with his winnowing fork, he's not separating the good people from the bad people. It's not that, right? When he comes with his winnowing fork, he's he's taking each individual grain and and he's tearing away the sort of outer husk that's wrapped around it. And so it would be helpful instead to think of each one of us, right, as a sort of individual grain of wheat. And each one of us comes with our own chaff, this sort of outer husk wrapped around us. And John the Baptist says as Jesus comes that he's going to lift you up with the winning fort. He's going to throw you up. He's going to turn you over. He's going to spin you around. And in doing so, he's going to tear away that outer husk. We might think of that outer husk as some sort of, I don't know, some sort of seal, some sort of gate between us and God. And so John says as Jesus comes that he's going to tear away that chaff. He's going to leave the grain. And he's going to burn that chaff with an unquenchable fire. Now, that's not a punishment. Instead, what he's saying is that Jesus is going to tear away from you that which is that outer husk, that, that stuff on the outside, that stuff that's sort of keeping you from, from God, that, that Jesus is going to tear away that husk, and whatever's sort of keeping you from God, that, that additional material that Jesus wants to burn that away. Now, if we don't read that in the right lens, that sounds like a threat, right? That Jesus is going to come, and he's going to take the wheat and the grain, he's going to burn the grain, it's going to burn forever. That's not what he's saying. Instead, what he's saying is that Jesus is going to come, and he's going to tear apart from you that which is not holy and pure. And whatever within you, around you, is not holy and pure, Jesus wants to burn it away with an unquenchable fire. So that is what, what is left within you is just that pure grain of wheat. That's what Jesus wants for you. Now, I think it's funny to read this at the end of the lesson as we read today. So the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire, and so he told the people many other things also that were good news, right? It doesn't necessarily sound like good news. But in John, the Baptist vision, it is. Because God's presence drawing near to us means that we are being made pure. We're being made holy. We're being invited to bear fruit worthy of repentance. That We're being invited to to be aware of our place in society and how we might honor and care for those around us. That we're being invited to have that husk sort of torn away. I hope that you are 
building in your own anticipation for Christmas. Uh, we certainly sensed a, a change in our lives this week at, at home. We, I say we, mostly Jill, Jill and the kids, but they baked cookies for some school functions. They've been painting and decorating Christmas ornaments. Yesterday we watched Home Alone, that uh, great Christian Christmas classic, right? So we're starting to get into the Christmas spirit in our home. I hope you are as well. But here in Advent, at least these first few weeks in Advent, we are sort of being reminded by John the Baptist that you ought to look forward to Jesus coming, you ought to celebrate Christmas, but it also comes with a little bit of a warning label. And the warning from John the Baptist is that Jesus wants to change you. Jesus wants to change you. And you can't come near the manger, you can't worship this Lord, this God, without recognizing the way in which you ought to bear fruit worthy of repentance. The way in which that chaff has sort of been holding you back and needs to be burned away. So I invite you to celebrate Christmas. I hope you come to church next week. I hope you come to church on Christmas Eve. I hope we have a big Christmas celebration. But be warned, this is not a hapless baby with no agenda. This is the God that created the universe who seeks to save your soul. Part of that means purifying your very your very self in this season. And as John says, this is good news. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we pray that you would give us an imagination, a vision for your good news. Not just your coming into the world in a predictable way, but your coming into the world to save it and to save us. And so, God, we pray in this Advent season that we would make ourselves wholly available that we would pray that you would search our souls and our spirits, that you would call us forth in repentance, that you would give us the courage and the strength to respond. God, we pray that this would not just be any other Christmas. Instead, God, that this would be an Advent and a Christmas season where we are changed, where we are changed according to your will, by the power of your spirit, uh, for the good of this church and this community. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparacle.org. May God bless you this week.